Okay, we're going to get started. Um, this is, to me, I, I want you to know, this is a really, really great passage that we're going to be in today. Um, it, it's marvelous. It, as always, there's a lot of detail, and I don't want you to be overwhelmed by the details, but uh, it's a very short passage, but it's surprising what it points to and what it pictures. Um, but we're first going to start with a psalm, which is um, 13. Thank you. I, I don't know why I'm looking up there. It's in front of me. But anyway, um, Psalm 13 to the chief musician, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, sorrow, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him, lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he dealt bountifully with me. And today we're in Exodus 30. It's verses 11 through 16. Like I say, it's just a short little passage. Um, <clears throat> where were we last week? Anybody remember what we talked about? The altar of incense. incense. Okay. All of a sudden, we go from that to something else. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 geros. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel when you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. And you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it, excuse me, for the service uh, where was I? Appointed for the service of the tabernacle of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. There are two words that should be explained in order for us to understand the contents of today's passage a little bit better, okay? They are redeem and ransom. Both words deal with the same issue, and the words can be both turned into either nouns or verbs. For simplicity's sake, a ransom is a payment. It is a sum of money or some other type of payment in order to obtain a prisoner's release. Unfortunately, we have a perfect example of the ransom from this past week when our president did something illegal in order to release prisoners from Iran. Okay, so we understand the ransom there. In the verb form, it is obtaining that release by making a necessary payment. If we think of man bound in sin... There must be a payment made to obtain our release from that. Redemption involves regaining possession of something in exchange for payment. The ransom payment is what is used to redeem the thing. The noun form of the words differ more than the verb forms, but in all there is more involved in the word redeem than in the word ransom because the application is wider. The reason I mention this now is that Israel is already at Mount Sinai, and yet they will be asked to pay a ransom for their souls. We shouldn't get stuck there and think that this somehow means that they have earned their status. As we will see, this ransom payment only pictures the work of Jesus Christ. It is not to be taken in any way at all that we somehow participate in our freedom from sin and bondage to the devil, with but the exception of receiving what Christ has done on our behalf. 
The payment here is only a type and a shadow of his work. It is not to be equated with any effort on our part in securing our release. I'll repeat this as we go through the verses to remind you of this. In the end, it is all about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Our text verse comes from Mark chapter 10. It's verses 44 and 45. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. When I was young, we would save S&H green stamps in order to buy things that we wanted. When we bought the things at the store, we would get a certain number of stamps as a bonus. The more we would spend, well, the more that mom would spend, the more stamps we got. It is the same as our bonus points for using our credit cards today. Along with the stamps came a book filled with pictures of things that we could buy with the stamps. The more costly the thing, the more stamps were needed. If there was a toaster that mom wanted, she would save up her stamps for that. The toaster in the picture was in need of redemption, and the stamps were the ransom payment for it. When the book of stamps had enough to buy the toaster, off she would go to redeem her prize. It was an enjoyable thing to do, and it was something that we anticipated with great delight. This concept parallels man's plight. There is a picture of humanity bound by sin and separated from the holy God who created him. In order to not violate his own holiness, a ransom price needed to be paid. The value of the thing being ransomed is very high, and therefore the price to be paid was very high as well. To think of what Christ did for us, well, it is simply astonishing. When Jesus said that he came to give his life a ransom for many, it means just that. He gave his life to redeem us. As God's holiness is what could not be violated, the price for our redemption is an infinite one. As only God is infinite, then only the God-man could make the payment. I mean, you wonder why Jehovah's Witnesses believe what they believe when they say he's not God. Every picture that we've seen clearly shows us this. Only the God-man could do what Christ has done. The humanity of Jesus is the payment but the deity of Jesus is what seals the deal. He is the bridge between these two. The payment is made for us by him, and it is received by him on behalf of God the Father. This is what we see pictured in today's passage. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two thoughts for you today. The first is the ransom money. Verse 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is the first time that these words have been given since Exodus 25, verse 1, when the Lord began to give the instructions for the gathering of materials for the tabernacle. Since then, it has been one long, uninterrupted set of instructions. These words now form a new thought with a new direction, but they're only going to last for six verses, and then the Lord will provide further instructions for the construction of more tabernacle implements. However, even these instructions, which seem unrelated to the ongoing narrative, are intricately tied into it. In Exodus 25, verse 1, it said this, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly, with his heart, you shall take my offering. All of the articles of these past chapters seem to have been constructed from this willing offering of the people. But this is incorrect. We will see this as the verses continue. What seems now as an interruption in the normal, unbroken flow of the narrative is actually a logical and even essential part of it. 
as the words, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, are set off as their own verse. It is as if we are being asked to pause and to consider them. And now that we have, we can move forward into the what and the why of the coming verses. Verse 12, when you take the census of the children of Israel for their number. Now, not to overwhelm you with a complicated commentary from a long dead scholar, but one of the things that I often repeat to you is that we need to be careful when reading commentaries and assuming that they're correct. John Lang, a man that I love and he's very intelligent, goes into great detail concerning what is mandated in this verse with the intent of correcting other scholars. And yet his commentary is completely inaccurate. Here's what he says. The tabernacle itself was to be built from voluntary contributions. He cites Exodus 35.5, not from legally imposed taxes. And in this voluntary way, more was given than was needed. He cites Exodus 36.5. Moreover, the designation of the use of the money for the service of the tent of meeting, which is Exodus 30, 16, does not mean for the work of the building, but for the perpetual service of God in the building. This is implied also in Luther's translation. Moreover, it is said that this tax is to be collected from the Israelites when the census of the adult males is taken, but such an enumeration did not take place till after the tabernacle was erected. He gives several points. One, the tabernacle was to be built of only voluntary contributions. Two, more than enough of voluntary contributions were given, and so this tax was unneeded for its construction. Three, the money to be mentioned in connection with this census is for the care of the tabernacle, not its construction. And four, the census was taken after the construction of the tabernacle. The analysis is incorrect. He didn't consider the words of Exodus 38, which we will look at in just a little while. It is a mistake that would lead to a wholly unfounded conclusion as to why the Lord is now directing this money to be collected at the time of a census. Let us always be careful to not assume that a commentary is correct until we have fully searched out the matter at hand. The Lord is now, at this time, requiring a census of the people, right in the middle of the details for the construction of the tabernacle and its furniture. Why would he do this? Verse 12 going on, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When the census is taken, each man is to give a ransom for himself. This seems more than odd, especially when the people have already been redeemed by the Lord. Here's what it said in Exodus 15 after they went through the Red Sea. It says, you and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. This is now the third time that the noun kofer or ransom has been mentioned in scripture. The word comes from the verb kafar, which means to appease. It then means a covering and thus figuratively a redemption price. It was first used in Genesis 6 verse 14 in the asphalt, which was used to cover the Ark of Noah. The verb form was used in Genesis 32 verse 20 when Jacob sent a gift to Esau in hopes of allaying his anger. At that time, he said this, I will appease, that word kafar, him with the present that goes before me, and afterward I will see his face, perhaps he will accept me. The intent of the gift was to cover over the previous transgressions against his older brother. The required ransom payment now is tied in with the numbering of the people. Its intent was to impress upon the minds of the people that they were actually unworthy to be a part of the holy congregation. And because of this, they would need to pay a covering for that unworthiness. The Lord had redeemed them in a state of unworthiness, and now they were to pay a ransom as a personal acknowledgement of that redemption. 
when the ransom is paid, in the eyes of the Lord, it would be as if their unworthiness no longer existed, and thus they would be kept safe from the justly deserved punishment of the righteous judge of all mankind. With this covering, they could then come into the presence of the Holy Lord without any fear of danger. This is explicitly stated in the next words, verse 12 continuing. When you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. The paying of the ransom is directly tied into the idea of being saved from a plague. Interestingly, the word negef or plague has only been seen once so far in scripture, and that was in Exodus 12. Here we go. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague, the negef, shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. As you can see, the Lord is making a direct connection between the shedding of the blood of the lamb and the ransom payment of the men in the census, which is to be of silver. One logically follows along with the other, redemption and ransom. The terms, though similar in meaning, do differ. Redemption, as I said, is wider in its application than ransom. This noun form, negef, or plague, is only used seven times in the Bible, and all seven are in relation to the people of Israel. The final time it's used is in Isaiah chapter 8, where it is ascribed directly to the Lord in relation to the people of Israel. Here's what it says. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling, that word there, and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This verse from Isaiah is then used by Paul when speaking of Christ in Romans chapter 9 and by Peter also speaking of Christ in 1 Peter chapter 2. In essence, Christ became the very plague upon Israel that the blood of the lamb and the ransom money was to protect them from. In their rejection of Christ, they rejected what these types and shadows only pictured. What a mistake to underestimate and thus reject God's provision in Jesus Christ. Verse 13, this is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give. The term those who are numbered is the Hebrew word pakad. It is not an unusual word in and of itself. It is used over 300 times in scripture and under various contexts. What is unusual is that it has not been used since Exodus chapter 20, which is the chapter of the giving of the Ten Commandments, and it won't be used again until Exodus 32, both under different contexts. However, it will be used five times in verses 12, 13, and 14. It is being specifically highlighted. The word means to visit, to appoint, or to attend to. The significance of numbering, then, is to show that a certain group out of a whole are being appointed or visited for a special purpose. Verse 13 continues, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The word for half, machasit, very hard word for me to pronounce, is introduced here, and it will be used three times between verses 13 and 15. The specificity is given that it is to be one half a shekel. The stress, though, is not on one half, but on shekel. We know this because the weight is then further described as the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is a measurement of weight, not specifically a coin of a preset value. It is this weight which is required. But more than just any shekel, it is to be of the shekel of the sanctuary. It is a standard shekel by which all other weights would be compared. 
The amount is not a great one. It is believed that the half shekel would equal approximately eight grams of silver. Although the value of silver in biblical times isn't known, on the day that I typed this sermon, eight grams of .999 pure silver was worth $4.21. The amount is not so small as it should be treated with contempt. Even a very rich person will bend over and pick up a $5 bill on the road. On the other side, it is not so large as to be a burden on even a poor person. A poor person will spend more than this much on a McDonald's breakfast on any given day. Verse 13 continues, a shekel is 20 geras. Now a half shekel is defined in another way for us, by the gera. It's a new word for us which will be used five times between Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Ezekiel, all in the same context. The word comes from the verb garar, which means to drag away. The gera literally means a bean or a kernel, which is round as if scraped. So if you scrape the silver, it turns into a little bean, and thus you drag it away. Thus it is a portion of a shekel which has been taken away. This is exactly the same idea as our modern use of grain when speaking of either money or gunpowder. A shekel is said to be equal to 20 geras, and thus one half a shekel is 10 geras specificity is given, and so an explanation is expected. Therefore, we must return again to Bollinger to define the number 10. 10 signifies the perfection of divine order, completeness of order, marking the entire round of anything, is therefore the ever-present signification of the number 10. It implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. Thank you, Bollinger. Verse 13 continues, the half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. This ransom money is said to be a terumah, or an offering to the Lord. The word terumah comes from the word rum, which means to be lifted up or to be exalted. This seemingly insignificant payment was to be exalted and raised up before the Lord. Verse 14, everyone including among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The age of those who were to pay included any male from the age of 20 and up. It is at the age of 20 that a Hebrew is considered full-grown. At this age, they would be considered acceptable for military service, and also the Levites commenced their service in the sanctuary at this age. No male above this age was to be exempt from the payment. If you go to the New Testament, Jesus actually pays it. Remember, they, uh, they asked, do you not pay the temple tax? And uh, uh, Jesus said, well, what do you think, Peter? Are the sons exempt or do they pay? And Peter says, well, they're exempt. And he says, well, so that we don't offend, go take and uh, fish. The first fish that you pull out will have just enough for us. And it was that coin which was cut in half, so it paid for Jesus and for Peter. Okay, so... There you go. No male above this age was to be exempt, and the number 20 is defined by Bollinger as the number of expectancy. All of these, 20 and above, were to give their terumah, or offering, to the Lord. Verse 15, the rich man shall not give more, and the poor man shall not give less than the half shekel. The ashir, or rich, are now mentioned for the first time in the Bible. The word won't be used again all the way until the book of Ruth, and it will mostly be used in the five books of wisdom. The dal, or poor, mentioned only for the second time. The word comes from dalal, which means to dangle. By implication, such a person dangles. He's lean, he's needy, and he's weak. The point of this requirement should be obvious, but it is well explained by Matthew Henry. Here's what he says. The rich were not to give more, nor the poor less. The souls of the rich and the poor are alike precious 
and God is no respecter of persons. And other offerings men were to give according to their worldly ability. But this, which was the ransom of the soul, must be alike for all. The souls of all are equal value, equally in danger, and all equally need a ransom. The rich man could not walk up to the temple and say, I'm giving more in order to secure my own better ransom. The poor man could not feel that his atonement was of less importance than the wealthy man. And there is no state of provision for a man to pay for the ransom of another. It is a tenant later explicitly written into scripture by the sons of Korah. Here's what it says in the 49th Psalm. None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever. Verse 15 continues, when you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. For the third time in three verses, we are told that this is a terumah, or a raising up of an offering to the Lord. This raising up is specifically said to make atonement or to be a covering for the people. A ransom is required or atonement will not be made. The offering is equally binding on all and thus its effects are equally realized in all. It is what saves from the vengeance of God which was sure to come on those who failed to make it whether through pride, arrogance, or sheer neglect. Verse 16. And you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting. The atonement money which is collected will come out to a total of 100 talents and 1,775 shekels. This is recorded in Exodus 38, and I told you I was going to read this. The specific use for this silver is explained there as well. And the silver... Exodus 38, 25 through 28. And the silver from those who were numbered of the congregation was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A bika for each man. That is half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. For everyone included in the numbering from 20 years old and above for 603,550 men and from the 100 talents of silver were cast the sockets of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil. 100 sockets from the 100 talents, one talent for each socket. Then from the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars, overlaid their capitals, and made bands for them. Going through the description of the tabernacle's construction, it was seen that there were exactly 100 sockets to be made, each a talent in weight. The weight of these are precisely aligned with the 100 talents of silver which were collected. There were also the silver pillars, hooks, and bands. The exact amount was needed for those implements was precisely received from this census as well, 1,775 shekels. There is nowhere else in scripture a note that extra was needed or that extra was left over. And usually when there is, it says that. In other words, the exact number of people had come out of Egypt to exactly provide the exact amount of silver required for these silver items. As the deliverance of Egypt was an exact moment in time which was promised 430 years earlier, and as the travels of Jacob took them to Egypt at exactly the one halfway point of those 430 years, and as countless other exacting details had to occur in order for there to be the precise number of people at this moment in time, the collection of the silver that is now being mandated shows evidence of God's hand on every single minute detail of human generation, time, the movement of nations, even the amount of food that was available at any given moment in history. 
This one verse taken in context with these other points recorded in scripture shows the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. In order for this to come about as it did, an infinite number of minute and precise occurrences were needed to align perfectly. And yet, we read verses like this without a single second thought. But the details when understood show us a magnificence in the word of God that is beyond our ability to grasp. Every chapter, every verse, and every word is intricately woven into the most marvelous tapestry ever conceived of. As a side note, the King James Version does mess up this translation here. The Hebrew says, Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting, not the tabernacle of the congregation. They receive two demerits. And the New King James Version, which I use, gets one demerit for calling it the tabernacle of meeting. Precision is realized in God's word. We should therefore be precise with God's word. As another side note, Every translation of this verse gives the idea of the silver being used for the ongoing service of the temple. But as was seen from Exodus 38, which I read you a minute ago, it is not to be used for the continuing service, but for its actual construction. This silver is for the sockets and the other items. Specificity is important as the next words bear out the reason for what we are saying. Verse 16 finishes with these words, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. The silver ransom money was to be, as it says, a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord. The first time a zikaron or memorial was mentioned in scripture was, guess what? At the Passover in Exodus 12, when it said this, so this day shall be a memorial, a zikaron, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Again, as earlier, the blood of the Passover is being directly equated to the silver of this ransom money. The redemption and ransom are intricately woven into one concept. The memorials brought to remembrance past deliverance, and they continue to remind them of that state concerning their present state of being. The redemption silver was used in the tabernacle construction to show us that everything, everything about our redemption stands on Christ and is supported by Christ alone. A price was paid to bring us back home. Atonement came, a covering, perfect and pure. And so from your courts never shall we roam. Our place is fixed and firm, our place forever secure. Through the payment of Christ there on Calvary, ransom was made. No more is there any debt. Because of his death there on that cruel and lonely tree, satisfaction for what we owed has been perfectly met. The price was paid. The life of the man ebbed away. Our atonement came so perfect and pure. But then came an even greater day when death was defeated. Now our place is forever secure. Our second thought today is pictures of Christ. Moses was implicitly instructed that a census was going to be taken with the words, when you take the census of the children of Israel for their number. No census has been mentioned to this point, but now it is a known matter. There is a specific time frame involved in the taking of this census, even though it is not yet revealed when it will be. A census is made in order to determine a number. The mention of numbering the people is made five times in these few verses. Thus, there is a hidden stress upon that word. Further, the name of the Lord, Jehovah, is mentioned six times in the passage, but only five of them are in the actual instructions. Both of these five occurrences point to grace, five being the number of grace. The act of numbering implies ownership or authority over a thing. This is why we number the things that we possess. 
I may know that my neighbor has $2 million, but only because he first counted it and he told me. He counted what he possesses. Likewise, I have counted my money, and it equals $24.37, all mine. We can do this for any of our assets because they are ours. The Lord is calling for a census of his people because they are his. The fact that he already knows their number is irrelevant. He wants Moses and thus us to know it. He is identifying for all to know that this total number of people is his. As they are his, he has authority over them and the right to align them in the manner that he chooses. The stars are numbered because they belong to the Lord. Here's what it says in Isaiah 40. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Not only does the Lord number the stars, but he also names the stars. It is a double note of ownership. The same is true with Israel. He named them, and therefore he is now expressing a double note of authority over them. The same holds true with the span of our lives. In Job, we read that he is the owner and controller of all men by this concept as well. Here's what it says in Job 14. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. The Lord is exercising his authority and demonstrating his ownership of Israel through this coming census. This is why the sin of David in the taking of a census was so great. He went out to number the people of Israel without the Lord's direction. He was, in essence, claiming ownership of them and excluding the Lord's authority in the process. It was a very costly lesson for David. The account is recorded in both Kings and in Chronicles in part as a reminder to us of both the sin of pride and the mercy of the Lord at the repentant heart. The Lord will not give his glory to another, but the Lord will allow us, if we are humble, to share in the blessings of his glory. In this, we see that there is only one rightful person who has ever been given the trust of choosing, ordering, and numbering the people of God, Jesus Christ. In this position of authority, he never forgets the glory of his Father, a glory which he has shared in and will share in for all eternity. Moses' numbering of the people at the Lord's command is only a picture of the Lord's numbering of God's people. But there is a logical order to the process before the numbering. First, there was a need of redemption. The people were in Egypt and they were in bondage. That is man bound in sin. Next, there was the one who can redeem, one who is powerful enough to break the bonds and overthrow the power of the devil who has bound us in that sin. That is Christ. This is followed by the act of redemption itself. This was seen in the slaying of the Passover, picturing the death of Christ. After that, the duty of the redeemed was seen in the obedience of following the Lord in his commands. Only after that come the privileges of our redemption, which are found in worshiping and serving him. Each step has been logical and orderly. Only when people are redeemed can they then be numbered among the redeemed. This is where we come to in this passage. No sooner is the numbering mentioned for Israel than the note of a ransom to be paid is given. Arthur Pink states it this way, God appropriates his elect unto himself only as a ransomed people. This is the same pattern as before at the Passover where the same words were used. Again, the blood of the Passover is being tied into the silver ransom money here in this passage. And in both instances, if the people failed to meet the requirement, Simple as it may be, the penalty would be a plague among them. Both the blood and the silver picture the work of Jesus Christ. In their rejection of Christ, he became the plague upon Israel. 
The same is true with the world at large. In the rejection of Christ, the plagues of revelation will come upon the whole world. The pattern follows consistently and logically in scripture. This is why the Bible says in a seemingly contradictory manner, these words from Isaiah 55 verse one, ho, everyone who thirsts come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. The ransom money only pictures Christ. We are not redeemed with things such as silver. Peter explains this to us in his first epistle. He says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The precious blood of Christ is pictured in the silver medal. The blood is the mode of redemption and shows us the character of Christ's work. Its value is the means of payment and shows the very high price of the ransom. As we have seen in the past, silver itself pictures what? Said it many sermons, redemption. Silver or kasef comes from another word, kasaf, which means to be eager or to long for. Thus the redemption money signifies that which we long for. Paul explains this in Romans 8. Here's what he said. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. From the fall of man onward, the expectancy of the work of Christ is pictured in the redemptive process of man. And Christ is the foundation of that redemptive process. Paul explicitly says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that Christ is, is the foundation of the gospel. The next thing noted was the word pakad. It is mentioned five times in this short passage. It signifies to visit or to appoint. A certain number were appointed out of a whole. And this is a picture which is being developed of the greater world at large. It is explained in the words of Luke's description of what occurred in Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Here's what he said. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. There is a portion of a whole who are appointed to eternal life. They are those who believe in Christ and receive his work. It is for this special purpose in the process of redemption, which is being highlighted in this verse. Next was mentioned the specific amount of the ransom payment. This is a beautiful picture of Christ. It is one half shekel, according to the sanctuary shekel. The sanctuary shekel pictures the divine standard by which all else was to be measured. The half shekel then pictures Christ's humanity. He's the God-man. The half is his humanity as the mode of redemption. He is the heavenly standard, but it is his humanity which must deal with the sins of man. Further, as I noted, it was silver reflecting the precious nature of Christ, but it was only a small amount. In today's money, about $4.21. It was not so small as to be treated with contempt by a rich person, but it was not so large as to be a burden on even a poor person. Anyone who would treat this with contempt would be foolish to do so. And anyone who said that they couldn't obtain the amount would be considered either too lazy to deserve what it signified or just completely undeserving. As Alexander McLaren states about this, thus there is but one sacrifice for all, and the poorest can exercise faith, and the richest can do no more. In both, we see the truth that Christ is available if we are willing to simply reach out our hand to him and to never treat what he has done with contempt on the other hand. 
The silver picture is his work, not ours. It is only a type and a shadow for us to understand. Whether the blood of the Passover or the silver of the ransom money, each of which pictures Christ, there is a truth which must be considered. We must personally obtain the work of the Lord, applying it by faith to our lives so that he will stand between sinful us and the holy God. Next, we saw that the half shekel was further defined as 10 geras. The word gera comes from the word garar, which means to drag away. 10 geras are required to make full payment, and thus it is this amount which pictures the dragging away of our sin. If nine were given, it would be insufficient. If 11 were given, it would be too much. As Bollinger notes, these 10 then imply that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. There's nothing wanting, and all is complete in Christ's payment for our sins. These are, in essence, dragged away once and for all time through his work. So what do these 10 geras picture? The 10 geras picture the 10 commandments. The price of those was paid in Christ's fulfillment of them in his human state. It was he who kept the law and paid the penalty for it on our behalf. Thus, he is the perfect ransom. This is actually beautifully spoken of by him in the parable of the lost coin. Here's what he says. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Our turning to God through the completed work of Christ is all that is necessary to make the angels of heaven rejoice. Next noted was the age of those who were to give, 20 and above. 20, as I said, signifies expectancy. In this, there is the note that those who give are those who are expectant of what the offering would mean. It is the hope of the believer that what Christ has done is sufficient. The number is neither arbitrary or without meaning. Rather, it is exactly what the Bible speaks of concerning our faith. And this brings us to the next point, that it is faith in the offering. The offering, or terumah, as I said, comes from the word rum, meaning exalted or lifted up. This is seen explicitly in the use of the same word, guess where? Isaiah 52. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. This carries over directly to the New Testament where Paul writes of the exalted Christ. He says, therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that this was the set amount where the rich were not to give more, nor the poor less, it signifies that there is one standard and one standard alone by which man is redeemed. We cannot purchase our salvation through any other means, nor can we be redeemed without meeting the exact payment. Only Christ is a suitable ransom. This is why the term offering or terumah is mentioned three times in three verses. It is this and no other. Only through the cross of Christ can man be redeemed. He is the offering, he alone. This offering is what was in the last verse said to be taken and appointed for the service of the tabernacle to serve as a memorial. It is that which made atonement for them. 
The memorial before the Lord is exactingly seen in the words of Hebrews chapter 12. Here's what it says. My favorite verse in the Bible, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ is now seated ever before the Father as a memorial for us. His work is complete, and his scars are the proof of our redemption. It is this which has made atonement for us, and it is he by which we are atoned for. No passage of scripture could be more reassuring than what is presented in the words that we're looking at today. As a short explanation for you, I want to note that the placement of this passage may at first seem abrupt and even illogical. We have the description of the altar of incense, which we saw last week. Thank you that you remembered that. And then we have the description of the bronze laver, and right in between the two, there is this passage about ransom money. And it is ransom money which will be used for things which have already been described. But the last verse explains the placement. The silver is to be appointed for the construction of the tent, specifically for the silver implements which were mentioned, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord. The altar of incense pictures Christ's intercessory work for us, which includes our petitions and prayers. The bronze laver will picture Christ's sanctification of us, meaning our ongoing spiritual purification as well as growth. By placing the memorial of our atonement between the two, we are instructed that it is Christ who redeemed us. Therefore, it is he to who we pray to God the Father through, and it is he who sanctifies us before him. In other words, it is our redemption and atonement upon which everything else stands and upon which everything else is dependent. No prayers are heard by God apart from Christ's redemption of us, and no sanctification before God occurs apart from having first been redeemed. This passage between these other two passages is given as a stark reminder of this fact. Israel brought 10 geras of silver as a ransom before the Lord. We bring the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments by Christ before our Heavenly Father. In this, we have been counted among his sons. Christ has acquired his rights over us. We are no longer our own, for we have been bought at a price. And that brings me to my final thoughts about this passage. I mentioned the precision of what had to occur for the amount of silver to come out exactly as was needed for the silver of the sanctuary. Literally, from the very moment of creation, right up until the moment of the census, every single thing was preordained in order for these two things to line up. And yet, there's more on the other side of the census as well, because the same things that we read about in this passage were also used to show us larger pictures of the redemption of man through the greater work of Jesus Christ. In other words, the grandiose nature of planning to have the correct number of people of a certain age come forward with a certain amount of silver to fit an exact need for the construction of the tabernacle at a particular moment in time is only a picture of something even more precisely detailed and even more magnificent. When we get thinking that life is out of control, or if we think that somehow God has forgotten about us, what we can do is come to this passage about this ransom money and see that that is the furthest thing from the truth. If he cares enough about mere grains of silver, which can be lost in the sand by simply letting go of one's grip, how much more do you think he cares about you, an integral part of his heavenly temple which is not built with hands? Don't allow yourself to get sidetracked by this wearisome world. Instead, keep your eyes on the prize, fix your eyes on Jesus, 
and know in your heart that God has a marvelous plan which is worked out in such immense detail that even the hairs on your head are figured into it. Be at peace, trust in Christ, have a steady heart, and know that you are highly favored. And if you've never taken the time to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you're watching these sermons for whatever reason, today is the day of salvation. Now, today is the day of God's favor. Don't let another moment go by and say that, I'm going to wait. I'm going to see what God is doing. See if this is real. I'm telling you, he's got it all figured out. And as it showed in the book of Job, we don't know our number. He's got them numbered already. He knows every single detail of every single thing that has ever occurred. And when I say that he is building a temple, if he's the architect, he didn't start planning a temple and not know every detail that was going to go into it. If he can make the magnificence of this universe, every detail that fits so perfectly, then he has certainly thought that into the temple as well. And the question is, are you going to be a part of that heavenly temple or not? And you have to decide. You have to choose Jesus Christ. I have somebody on uh, YouTube every single week. He comments on my sermons and he comments on my prophecy updates. And he says, Charlie Garrett is full of pride. And I couldn't understand why he said that. I could never understand why would he say that. And finally, one day, he started talking about Calvinism. And it all clicked into place. Because I tell you that you need to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He thinks that's prideful because we have to do something in order to earn our salvation. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. In Romans chapter 3, Paul distinguishes faith from works. It's not a work at all. We see the good in God and we respond to it. That is what happens. And this guy is sending people down the highway of perdition by saying you don't need to receive Jesus Christ. And in fact, if you do, you're prideful. That is the furthest thing from the truth. But it took me like weeks to figure out what this guy is talking about. We have to respond to the call. And if you don't, you will stay eternally separated from your Heavenly Father. So make that call today. Do it. And as I said, if you are in Jesus Christ, you are highly favored. I have a closing verse to you from Isaiah chapter 40. It's verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatest of his greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Are you a part of the redeemed of the Lord or not? Not one is missing. He already knows. Next week is Exodus 30. It's verses 17 through 21. Some tasty nuggets from the word for you to savor. It's entitled the bronze laver. That'll be our 85th Exodus sermon. And as I say each week, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right. Our poem today is called The Ransom Money. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When you take the census according to my word of the children of Israel for their number, as I am relaying, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them, that there may no plague among them be, when you number them, abide by these instructions from me. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give. Half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, a shekel is 20 geras. The half shekel shall an offering to the Lord be. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above, as noted by me, shall give an offering to the Lord. Follow this directive carefully. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not than half a shekel give less when you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves as to you I address." 
And you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves according to my word. How great are you, O God, that you have sent Jesus to be the ransom for the weary soul. It is he who came to deliver us and unto him our many cares we can now roll. We have been redeemed unto you through his shed blood. Redemption has come at last. The payment is made. Nothing more is due from a life of sin and bondage into your courts we have passed. O God, your righteous demands have been satisfied for us. Thank you, O God, for our payment of ransom. Thank you, O God, for Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, yes, we do thank you for that. We thank you for the infinite value of the life of Jesus Christ that was given for fallen, finite us. Why you would do that, it's a marvel, it's a mystery, it's something that I simply cannot get my mind around. I know that many here feel the same. It's so hard to understand why you would do what you did, but there must be something special about us that you have, that you want to fellowship with people like us. Once again, hard to understand, but your love is so great and your wisdom is so magnificent that you came up with this plan to do it, and we're going to find out in the ages of ages why. And we're going to revel in it for all of eternity in your glorious presence, singing hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Hallelujah to Jesus our Lord. And Lord, you do know all the people that are out there right now with suffering of one type or another, whether it's a pain or a, a pain of the body or a pain of the heart or a pain in the wallet. So many people are suffering in that way as well, Lord, and you know all of them. And I would pray for them. I would pray that you would lift them up and bless them and take care of them. Keep your redeemed people safe and secure. And should it be your will to bring one of them home by whatever, by whatever occurrence, and help us all to understand it and to say that uh, we trust that your way is being worked out, even though it's hard to comprehend. We love you and we praise you, Lord. We exalt you. We commit the Lord's table to you and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We get the uh, instruction for the Lord's. Isn't this a pretty flower? Yes. And the way it's turned out, I said, that's got to go up there today. Wonderful. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible, right from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul writes these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have given thanks for this. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And... He broke it, and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech haolam, Borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This too, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body.
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Got to... Thank Pat. You know, she goes to a different church and then she finishes and she rushes right over here. And yeah, you just can't know what that means to me because she could sit and watch us online later, but instead she makes, you know, and she never misses these prayer meetings that she goes to. And just what a faithful soul. What a special person you are, Pat. Mm-hmm. Heavenly Father, we thank you for each person here today. I just, I'm so grateful that uh, people are willing to put up a, with my fumbling tongue and and my inability to get out my words half the time, but your word is so precious that it's worth overlooking the faults to get to the very heart of what you have in these passages. And it's such an honor to be able to tell people about these things and to have them share in the goodness which is revealed in these pictures which only point to Christ Jesus and his magnificent work, his magnificent work, which happened for us. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And for all eternity, we will worship and serve you. We won't let that duty down and help us to begin that, commence that right now instead of waiting until our eternal state to do it right now, to tell people about you and to spend time in your word and to share in your goodness each and every moment. Help us to do this. We love you, we praise you, and we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen.